Hello and welcome to We Make the Future, brought to you by PyTop. I'm your host, Andrew Webb, and in these audio interviews, I'll be meeting teachers, thought leaders, scientists and students, and exploring the future of education, making and technology. Here's a taste of what's coming up in this episode. I would be lost without my mobile in everyday life, but when I get to school, I'm just supposed to put it away and never take it out and never turn it on. The technology now extends our capabilities by allowing us to return the reasons for making into the learning experience. My first guest is Dr. William Rankin, PyTop's Director of Learning and Research. Bill, as he's affectionately known, was formerly Director of Learning at Apple, a professor of English at Abilene Christian University, and he holds a PhD in medieval literature. So we sat down to talk about change and what that means in today's classrooms. Here's what he had to say. So Bill, I'd like to talk to you today about change, both the rate of it in some areas and also the lack of it in others. And I'm going to start with a little story. One of my favourite examples of illustrating change is uh, apparently when Winston Churchill, um, he took part in the last cavalry charge. So when he entered the world stage, the cavalry charge was still a legitimate military manoeuvre. By the time he left the world stage, we had nuclear weapons. In all other industries, transport, healthcare, manufacturing, even fashion, nothing is as it was, except, it seems, education. So why do you think our education systems are still one that a Newtonian like Winston Churchill would probably recognise? It's interesting because I think there's change and there's change. So a lot of people will look at education and say, oh, there's been a lot of change because, for example, in Churchill's time, people were using you know paper and pens and, in fact, fountain pens, and now we're using computers. So look at that change. And I think superficially, there has been change in education. But when we look at real meaningful change, when we look at the not just the kind of surface change of how we do things, but of what we do, we haven't seen much change at all. And so the educational practices that were dominant, not just, say, in the 1900s when Churchill was in school, but in the 1800s and the 1700s, still look pretty much the same. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that most teachers learn a content area, but they don't necessarily receive training on how to teach. And so teaching by its very nature then becomes sort of... um, traditional. I do what my teachers did, and they they do what their teachers did, and and on and on backwards. So it's this kind of um, inherently conservative approach. Uh, We haven't necessarily looked at the ways that changing tools might generate changing pedagogies or changing teaching and learning methods. So fundamentally, then, what we see is a very surface level of change without meaningful change beneath. Some of that is changing, but it's not often changing in schools, in part because our colleges of education or our schools where people learn their trades are not necessarily focusing on changes in what we do. They're teaching people a new tool, like here's a digital whiteboard or here's um, a computer to use. But the resistance to things like the integration of mobile devices is fascinating. So there was a study, actually, I think back in 2007, um, where they found that 60% of British six-year students had used a mobile device in class to complete class assignments, even though mobiles were banned at their school, which is fascinating, right? 
So the interesting thing then is what we typically do is say, right, you're not allowed to use that because it's going to change up the process. It's going to change up what teachers can do. And I think part of what we're trying to do at PyTop, but I think part broadly of what teachers and learners are trying to do in education is find something more meaningful, find a way to use those tools that we use every day. Because I know that I would be lost without my mobile in everyday life. But when I get to school, I'm just supposed to put it away and never take it out and never turn it on. That's odd. You've kind of answered question two with that answer as well, because we're at ISTE this summer and we saw things like electronic whiteboards. But that's just putting like a new skin on an old system, right? It's just a more efficient blackboard and chalk. It's not actually changing the system. Is it evolution? Is it revolution? And how do we weaponize parents in this area because they like you say they go to classroom and they think well I didn't have this cool gadget when I was at school so therefore it must be you know the white ear of progress but it's not so how, how do we cut through that both as leaders in this sector and as a company well I think you know it's interesting because parents do see again that superficial change and say oh well I didn't have a computer or I didn't have you know this or that and there's this double-edged sword there which is to continue our we're, we're using a lot of military metaphors here I'm not sure how that works out but on the one hand people see that and say right that's significant change on the other hand they say well I want an education that looks like the education I had because that seems to be valid even though if you if you ask people further what was your experience of school oh, I was bored a lot of the time I didn't really like it I didn't find a lot of stuff useful but we almost feel it's it's like hazing we almost feel that people it builds character to go through that that ugly situation again. I think it's useful here. There's a fellow called Ruben Quintadura, and he's come up with this model, the SAMR model, right, which is a taxonomy about how we understand how technology gets used in education. And so at the lowest level, at the S level, is the S is for substitution. And all we do is we have a new technology comes in, but it doesn't fundamentally change anything. It just substitutes one thing for another. So I used to have a printed book. Now I have a PDF. It's still, the book is still static. The book is still, it, it doesn't do anything particularly. There might be some little affordances, like I can search in a PDF, which was harder in a book, although I had an index and a table of contents in that printed book. And so it still let me find things that I wanted to find. But fundamentally, it's just substituting one technology for another. At the second level is augmentation. And in augmentation now, I'm starting to get some capabilities I didn't have before. So if I move uh, if I move a text digital, I can start to do things like audio or video in a text, which I couldn't have before. That's starting to provide some augmentation. So in the print book, I could read that famous uh, speech by Churchill. But in the new book, right, in the digital book, I can actually hear that speech. And I can hear the way Churchill is in tone owning those words, and I can think about the effect that that would have had on the people hearing him during the Blitz, for example. At the next level above that is modification. Now we're starting to do some things that we couldn't do before. So to have people be able to reenact something and record that and then put it out for a lot of other people to see. Publication was something that was really hard in the in, in former times, and so we just didn't include it in education. At the highest level is redefinition. So I'm going to do things people never imagined doing before. I think fundamentally when we talk about 
change in schools, a lot of people are thinking only about substitution. And what we're trying to do, I think, here at PyTop, and what a number of people are trying to do, but I think we're really focused on this, is bringing in modification and redefinition. So how do we, instead of just having people go through an old process, how do we have people discover and address problems in their own communities or their own schools? How do we have them develop solutions to those problems so that they're not just learning a skill by doing these kind of rote exercises, but they're really understanding a new process, a process of research and discovery and collaboration and making that's transformational. And to do that, we really have to get to modification and redefinition. Let's move on to changes in your approach to education. So you're a long-standing academic, 30 plus years in the business, you've seen a lot of stuff. Specifically, what led to this moment? I mean, was it an epiphany or have you always championed constructionism? And how do listeners who want to find out more about this process of change begin it in their schools? Like, What, what does regime change look like for, for the average kind of Joe? You know, I, I think part of what we have to do is start considering the product of education. What do we really want out of people? And a lot of the older systems were about building, sometimes pretend it wasn't, but it was about building um, a, a sort of docile workforce. Um, so people who responded well to bells and schedules and you know, organized their lives in that way. And people who would do what they were told and do it repetitively and who had learned, even if they were bored, to continue doing things. It's interesting because the factories that we built that educational system for, uh, starting in the 18th century, those facilities don't really exist anymore. So part of what we're thinking about is, if we, if we think about the way things are happening in the world, we see this emergence of kind of s small time makers again. It's interesting because it's actually a throwback to the past where people built things in their houses or they, you know, made cakes or they did various kinds of crafts or they built solutions that other people couldn't and traded them with one another. We see that emerging on the internet in a really interesting way. So, you know, with sites like Etsy, for example, the cottage industry is being reborn because there's now a way for people to distribute their products globally, even though they're making just in their own homes. I think that's an interesting place to start looking, uh, that idea of making and of learning by making. Because, of course, when people apprenticed with a maker, they learned those skills, but they didn't just learn the skills in the abstraction. Um, so if we think about something like baking, for example, it turns out that the recipe has to change a bit if it's a very cold, dank day or if it's a very hot, dry day. We have to change some things a little bit. And you start to learn the wisdom of when to make those changes. That's really, I think, essential in new learning because we need people who can work in a variety of environments and who are thinking about those environments and the impact that they have. Let's talk about cottage industries and the rise of the, the artisan maker. I'm looking out over our production facility here and we've got pillar drills and, and 3D printers. And is, is, is that a cottage industry or is that the evolution of that cottage industry? Well, I, I think there are all kinds of cottage industries, right? And um, so the ability of, of everyday people to buy some of these technologies that used to be reserved only to large fabricators or manufacturers is interesting because now it lets me compete with some of those large companies. The, the problem with cottage Cottage industries for a long time was that they were restricted to the cottage. So you, your, your reach beyond your living room was pretty limited, um, or, or beyond your, you know, your your garage, which we would call a garage, but we're wrong. Um, 
anyway, you know, that there just wasn't a lot of reach. So to get that thing that you made out into the world was really hard and really expensive. But with global shipping and global discovery now through the internet, I can sell something not just to the people in my little town, I can sell things to people across the world and they can find them and buy them, which is kind of crazy to think about. And at a time of great economic disruption, I think those cottage industries become more and more important. We have to remember the history of the cottage industry, which is when the Black Death hits Europe and, you know, between a third and a half of the population die, depending where you are. What was interesting was that there were suddenly extra materials that had been being consumed by all those bodies, by all those people. And so the peasants who had had no, nothing extra by design suddenly had, you know, some extra wool or they had extra grain. Um, the the tax laws at the time were not very flexible because they had never had to be. And so the peasants who were able to bring those things in could keep some for themselves and start doing things with them. We, we forget about this, but it was actually women who kind of created the middle class. So women became brewers. You've got some extra grain, you can turn that into beer and you can sell that out of your house. If you've got extra wool, you can turn that into clothes and in cloth and you can sell that out of your house. And that gave people cash and access that they hadn't had before and allowed them to transform culture so that it, it's really the cottage industry that's the death of the feudal system. And that gave rise to what we now understand as this kind of middle class and this capitalist system. That's, that's its origins. I think it's interesting to understand the ways that the kids in our classes are going to be the makers of that next culture. We've seen a lot of challenges with the economic systems in place, with systems of manufacturing that have developed and increasingly have pushed out the small makers. So we see consolidation of these huge multinationals. And part of what making allows people to do is to find that sense of dignity again. When we're in a consumer culture, it's interesting because not just the products become labeled for consumption, but we become labeled for consumption. And we've seen this happen with a number of tech companies, for example, where they begin to productize us. Part of what we're doing at PyTop is really trying to discover ways, again, to empower individual makers, but also to help people find that sense of dignity where I can make the thing that's that's meaningful and important in my context, and I can share that out with lots of people. And somewhere in the world, someone else is going to need that thing or make that thing, and they're going to have something that I don't have. So we're really seeing this distribution now of, of access, of creativity, of making, and ultimately of sort of cultural power. It's really interesting to see. It's something we haven't seen in a long time. And and I think it's going to change the world. I think it's going to change fundamentally the way we understand how the world works. So it's not a return to that. It's taking the best of that and using technology to accentuate that. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And fundamentally, what, what people get confused about is they think technology is something separate or new. Technology is just a tool. Tools always have been about extending human capability. So I can't pick up that thing myself, but if I create a lever, then that lever can pick it up because of, you know, torsion and, and whatever. So all of a sudden I've made a tool. Well, that tool is technology. 
And the technologies we have today allow us to break out of our little hamlets, our little living rooms, our little garages. But it lets me now kind of reach all sorts of people. And so that I can collaborate with those people too. It, it doesn't mean that I can only work with people in my little town. So I might design something and build it and, you know, start making it. And it might get improved by someone who lives halfway around the world. And, you know, they might do some things with it and then it gets passed off to another person and they might do some things with it and gets passed off to someone else. This is not new. Fundamentally, this is who we are as humans and have always been, as you say. I mean, this is how we play as little children. Um, we make things. We make sandcastles. We make mud pies. We make, even from very, very small children, we make art all the time as little kids. And then we start thinking, well, making is not for me, or I can't really do that. And it stops. And it stops, that's right. But it doesn't have to, it doesn't need to. And the reason it stops has a lot to do with the, the technologies that were required, the tools that were required to make something meaningful and real. Those were pretty hard to get, and they were pretty expensive, and only a few people could afford those. I remember talking um, with Steve Wozniak, who's one of the co-founders of Apple, and what he and Steve Jobs said was interesting. They were, they were talking about the computer. And at the time that they were thinking about making personal computers, only a few people had them. Big governments had them. Big corporations had them. And what Waz said was, he and Jobs were talking, they said, imagine what would happen if every person had the same power and access as a company or a, 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 you know, or a country. Um, if they had access to these kinds of computers, what kinds of things would they make? I think we're just now beginning to see uh, opening up the, some of the possibilities of what people can make if they're encouraged to build and encouraged to make and if they have access to these kinds of tools. So the great thing about Raspberry Pi and about PyTop is it's this really affordable, accessible tool that gives people a platform for discovery and a platform for making that, that gives them power that they didn't have before. This is really fundamentally about empowerment. There's a line uh, um, our colleague Graham said in a cab we shared back to the airport the other day, and he said every parent in the world, no matter if you're in you know, the deepest Amazon rainforest or you know, Manhattan, wants the best for their kids. Of course. Uh, and we all kind of want that. But then I think, crucially, I want the best for everyone's kids, not just my kids. This cannot be an elitist thing. It cannot be... Adopt this methodology to give your kid the edge over the other kids because we create a pyramid structure, we, we, we create a subclass of Minox who get left behind. How do we ensure that this is used for the right reasons and used in a, in a socialist or social egalitarian way that works for everybody and doesn't create a them and us? You know, the danger is people always want some advantage over others. But what we see happening in the world now is it's actually much better if I have a bunch of colleagues um, than if I have a bunch of, you know, toadies around me or, or whatever, right? So because those people are going to challenge me to do more, they're going to extend my capabilities, they're going to discover things, uses, capabilities, actions that I would never have thought of. So we really rise together, I think, all boats rise when everyone has this kind of access. I think everyone wants, they want their children to do well and they want a good world for their children. I think we're starting to see some of the effects of, of what happens when, when some people don't get that access. And so their story never gets told, or they don't get that access. So 
Um, things that are meaningful to them don't get made. The other thing that the cottage industry tells us is that there's actually enough room for everyone. So if, like your sister you were talking about earlier um, when we were off offline, if your sister is making medieval hats, there's a space for that. And if you're making motion-sensing lights, there's a space for that. And if you're making beautiful art, there's a space for that. And it's not, it's not a zero-sum game. We're increasingly recognizing that almost nothing is a zero-sum game where there's only going to be one winner and a whole bunch of losers. That in fact, in these collaborative games, in these games where we all help each other uh, to move and to uh, be successful, we actually all win more because the richness of that environment creates increasing opportunities for everyone. So that's part of what we're, what we're trying to do is get to that richer, creative, making, shared platform um, where everyone benefits. So in some ways, what's interesting is this isn't a revolution into something brand new. It's actually a return to, to older things. And I don't think instinctively that, that teachers have to change what they were doing or how they were thinking. So when I came on, when I first started my graduate education and moved into teaching, it was at the dawn of word processing. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> it's fascinating because... And this is true of all tools. Tools extend human capabilities. They don't replace things that we do. They just change. They extend what we can do. So when you started being able to compose a text on a computer, what you gained was enormous flexibility. In the past, you had to spend a lot of time mapping. And so my teachers, for example, taught me outlining. We had to outline our papers. We had to think through them and accept it was a great process, and of course, we all had to fabricate this process, but I never figured out exactly what my paper was going to look like until it was already written. So I think like many people in my area, era, rather, so I came up, um, I was in schools in the 70s and 80s, what I do is write the paper and then go back and fabricate the outline that led to the paper that I had already written. <laughs> right? So I was really lying to my teachers because they were trying to give me a process of thinking things through. And it was complicated because once you started typing that paper up or once you put pen to paper, it was very hard to change things. And so if you hadn't done some thinking in advance, you found yourself in a mess. So when word processing came in, what it let you do is write the way you had always written, but then you could just move stuff around. You could take that paragraph and move it earlier in the paper and cut and copy and do all kinds of crazy things. And it gave shape, it gave extension to the human instinct that was already behind it. I think when we look at new making solutions or we look at some of the new educational structures that are in place, what we're really seeing emerge is that extension of what humans already are good at and, and already do. We try to solve problems. We do it all the time. You know, there's the sink is dripping, you know, and it's distracting us, or, you know, we we keep stubbing our toe on that, you know, step, or the the ground is eroding, so we need to plant something in our garden or whatever. We, we find these little problems and we try to solve them. We try to make things that fix them or make things that make our lives better. If we can link that to the kinds of subjects that people are learning in schools, then it gives us something much richer, a richer foundation, because it gives a reason for the learning. And that's the thing that's been missing, I think. 
The technology now extends our capabilities by allowing us to return the reasons for making into the learning experience. Uh, final question. You gave an awesome presentation at our SD Fringe event this summer. Uh, I was totally blown away. One of the best things I've seen, not only in terms of content, but also your weapons-grade keynote skills, which we all thought were <laughs> were superb. And you, using keynote like a backing band there, like a club singer, just bashing out tunes. Um, but one slide really struck with me, uh, and it was the final one. And it just said, this is the new classroom. And then next to a picture of the earth. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. So I want to try and pin you down specifically on the changes to the world, employment particularly, that school leavers will be entering. Because it's a travesty that kids are being taught for jobs that, if they've not already gone, are very much on the way out. And they're just going to come out the end of the sausage factory with, you know, where's my job? And it's and that way, that has gone. So, you know, we can kind of crystal ball this a little bit. I'm trying to think of examples or, or things that computers and machines are really good at, but then other things that humans are really good at. So machines and computers are really good at diagnosing cancer because they can scan images really, really, but they, they lack the empathy in the bedside manner that a human might be able to bring. So it, it's situations like that. So we might have in the future where people are, I don't know, a professional cuddler or, 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 you know, a kind of like a doula, but for for, for, for illnesses or something like that, you know, that that, that kind of... All the human things and the soft skills and the leadership and the empathy and all those sorts of things are really hard to teach. So let's just sort of talk around that for a little while in closing. Yeah, well, th- thanks for you know those compliments. And I, I do think it's interesting because part of what we've, we've had to deal with before, um, before these days is the fact that the classroom walls are non-permeable. I, they isolate us. And that's actually partly by design. Teachers design classes, schools design classrooms so that the outside world can't penetrate and distract us. Um, That's the idea of the thing. And the reason we don't want distraction is we're trying to have people memorize processes. But the challenge is that it's it's memorized processes, it's formulas, it's algorithms, it's, it's doing things by a recipe that machines are great at. They do it more efficiently, they do it more consistently, and they do it cheaper. So if we're preparing our learners for these kinds of rote processes, right, take this thing, insert it into this formula, get the result, we're not preparing them for the future. I don't know what the future will look like, but I do know that much of the future is actually already here. So the crazy thing is that there is no such thing as a a non-permeable wall anymore. I live in Virginia, but I work for this company that's based in the UK, but also in Austin, Texas, and Shenzhen, China, right? I, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm connected. And that allows me now to have these kinds of conversations. We can have these conversations not only sitting across a table from one another, we can have these conversations sitting at tables across the world from each other. And if that can happen in my day-to-day life, and it's the kind of thing that we experience a lot, all of us, um, then why am I not leveraging that for teaching and learning? Why am I not letting my students interact with the world? I, I don't mean that last slide any ki- in any kind of abstract way. I literally mean if learners can interact with people around the world, that actually gives more reasons for the learning to happen. And that's, that's part of what I want to do. That's part of what I want to get at. Think about how much energy students are expending doing these kind of meaningless assignments. And they're just burning off that energy at a time when we're becoming increasingly conscious 
of sustainability and of not wasting energy. It makes no sense whatsoever for our learners to be burning off all of this insight and all of this talent not solving something real. So I want my students in my classes uh, solving problems out in the real world. And I want them solving problems around the world in part to understand the differences that different contexts make. So something that's meaningful here in the UK becomes, has a different meaning in the US or in the UAE or in, you know, some other place around the world. I mean, every different place has these kinds of social, cultural, historical meanings attached to, and we broadly call that culture, right? They, they have these different meanings attached to things that we do. And understanding those differences in part gives me a window to look back on my own culture and to understand where I fit in this kind of global ecosystem. So that's a reason for doing that. I think, you know, if, if, we're, if we're talking about involving people then in the world, in making things around the world, then we get to a much richer form of, of learning. And that's part of what I was trying to get at in that talk as well, that there are things that people are going to bump into that are going to change their lives. And so the reason that we want to have people involved and invested in this stuff is if machines are great at solving these kinds of routine problems and these kinds of algorithmic or recipe-based repetitive tasks, which is going to be a real challenge because we, we're we starting, for example, to see the cusp of driverless cars, which means all kinds of people are going to be out of work soon. Um, and that's that's it's dangerous if we're not preparing for it. So, you know, when driverless cars come in, there's going to be no need for taxi drivers or truck drivers or the kinds of you know parking lot attendants or all these kinds of, of, of people, right? But we do need those people. So what we've got to do is if machines can take over the work, um, then we need to humanize the reasons. So what humans are really great at is a couple of things. Humans are really great at creativity, at coming up with new applications, new mixes of things. It's very hard for machines to do. Humans are really great at empathy. Um, that's something you, you addressed. I think that's really important. We understand how humans work. We have a long evolutionary history of needing that skill. Humans are really good at wisdom, which is the application of knowledge in particular circumstances and understanding how those circumstances change things. And we certainly, as a global people, need more wisdom right now. So what I want to happen with this kind of breaking down of, of walls and barriers is I want to encourage people in those three areas to be empathetic, to be creative, and to be users and developers of wisdom and making things in each of those different uh, areas, making things for people around the world actually helps me develop all three of those. Uh, that's a place that's, that's going to be protected in the future. That's a, a kind of career that's going to be protected in the future because machines are rubbish at that. And so what I really then need is people to do what people do well and machines to do what machines do well. And if I'm preparing people to do what machines do well, I'm not preparing them for the future. I'm preparing them for a past. It's not like they'll just be unhappy because they can't find a job. They'll also be unhappy because they've been promised something that, that culture hasn't delivered. 
I don't want to create an angry generation saying, you know, you promised me these things and then I got nothing. So what I fundamentally have to help with, I, I feel like what, what our team here at PyTop has to help with is helping people discover the places and ways where they can make meaningful contributions. So when we talk about learning by making, we're not just talking about a kind of procedural approach. We're really talking about a human approach, a fundamentally human approach that's about human value. We need people. We need people who are diverse thinkers. We need people who are creative thinkers, empathetic thinkers, wise thinkers. And that's the kind of people our curriculum, our projects are trying to build. A massive thank you to Dr. William Rankin for taking the time to talk to us there about change. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and I sincerely hope you have, um, there will be plenty more coming over the following weeks. Do keep tuned. Uh, the information will be on our social media, which is Get Top on Twitter. Uh, we'll be on the Facebook page. And of course, it'll be in iTunes, SoundCloud, and all those other places and spaces. And remember to subscribe, like, share, download, and everything else. Uh, the more listeners as we get the more fun we can have uh, if you've got any questions or queries about the show or you'd like to get in touch in any way uh, reach out via twitter again that is get Top, and we can try and do some stuff uh, and find out more about you uh, there's plenty more to come over the next couple of weeks exciting interviews uh, we're at various conferences and trade shows and we've got some exciting developments happening in the PyTop offices so lots to play for um, but until then see you next time bye bye